It's a privilege to welcome those who are logging on from different parts of the world. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke for the last few months, and more specifically looking at the parables of Jesus over the last few weeks. And we continue in that series this morning as we do the parable of the great dinner. And today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 14 from verse 15 to verse 24. I hope that you've been blessed by the series through the parables as we look at these heavenly teachings that the Lord gives us with, with earthly application um, for all of us. Uh, very practical teaching. So turn with me, please, if you would, to Luke chapter 14. I'm going to be reading from verse 15 to verse 24, the parable of the great banquet. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everyone, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out and quickly Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, So what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So I wonder, have you ever had dinner with a famous person? Uh, there have been two occasions that I have had the, the privilege of having dinner with, with a famous person. The first instance was in India, when my family and I were invited by the King of Kolapur to his palace to have dinner. It was a very humbling experience. The second occasion was three years back here in the UAE when the Christian leaders were invited to Sheikh Nakhian's Majlis for dinner. Uh, we had to be briefed about the social etiquette, the, the do's and the don'ts, um, what we could say, what we shouldn't be saying, when we could eat and when we shouldn't be eating. And of course, both of these dinners were by invitation only. And you weren't allowed entrance unless you had been invited. Well, today I want to tell you how you can all have dinner with Jesus. And you would think that everyone would jump at that opportunity. But as we will see in our passage, many turn down that invitation. And when I say have dinner with Jesus, obviously I'm using a metaphor here. A metaphor of the, the joys and the delights of being with him in his kingdom, dining at the 
Messiah's banquet that he provides throughout all eternity. The book of Revelation refers to it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see that in Revelation chapter 19. And it makes, us, it makes it very clear that all of us should want to be there. And Jesus himself referred to this marriage supper in Luke chapter 13, where he said that people from all the corners of the earth will dine with Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. But many who assumed that they would be included will be cast out. And I want to show you how you can be sure, how you can know for sure that there will be a place for you at the table with your name on it. So my first point this morning is from verse 15. We see here the awkward setting that has taken place here. And of course, to understand this parable, like any of the parables, we need to provide some context so that it makes sense. And Jesus was eating in the home of one of the, the leaders of the, the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And we've already been introduced to many of the Pharisees and, of course, their, their attitude toward Jesus. Um, as we've already seen, these Pharisees had an agenda. They wanted to trap Jesus in one way or another. And they were watching carefully to see if Jesus would violate some of the, some of the laws that were written there in the Mosaic Law. And they believed that on the Sabbath, you shouldn't be healing anybody. You shouldn't be working. And healing, they thought, included that. Um, we see that in chapter 14, right in the beginning. And nothing should be allowed on the Sabbath. Not even light a fire. Not even walk. Not even use any type of exercise. And we see in chapter 14 that there's a man there who's suffering with palsy. And he comes down in front of Jesus. And they were hoping that Jesus would do something that they could point to of him breaking the law. And of course, Jesus was not the typical polite guest of um, that you would have at your dinner at all and he went out of his way to point out and show the hypocritical attitude that these pharisees had and so he defies the pharisees by healing this man who had dropsy in chapter 14 we see in the beginning from verse 1 to 7 and of course this provoked the pharisees Next, Jesus watched as these proud men picked out the places of honor for themselves at the dinner. And then in Luke 14, from verse 7 to verse 11, he delivers a very pointed message about humility, which must have, I think, humiliated the guests that were there who were being very proud and very arrogant. And then finally, as the, the tensions were not great enough already, the Lord told the host that he had invited the wrong guests. He said in verse 12, he said, you should have invited the poor, you should have invited the crippled, you should have invited the lame and the blind, instead of all these friends, relatives, and rich neighbors who can return the favor. So at this point, you could have sliced the atmosphere at this dinner with with a knife. You could feel it. It must have been very, very 
tense at this point. But the, at the end of verse 14, Jesus rebukes them. And he mentions the resurrection of the righteous. And that's important for our story this morning. And to break the tension and to try and sound almost spiritual, one of the, the guests, he, he, he makes a toast. And this is where our story starts this morning in verse 15. He says, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He probably thought that both Jesus and all the guests would have liked that toast. They would have agreed with his uh, pious comment at that point. And everyone around the table probably nodded in agreement and, and said to one another, Amen, Amen, it would be wonderful when we're all there, won't it? And perhaps there was even some, some nervous laughter and some chuckling. But the unstated question that lies behind our text that Jesus is addressing here is really what sort of person will be in the kingdom of God? These Pharisees thought they would be, and they were toasting to it. But in our parable, we'll see this, this answer to the question that Jesus is um, laying down for all of us. Who will be in the kingdom of God? Well, of course, we know that these Jewish leaders, they, they assumed that they would be there. You know, people just like us would be in the kingdom. We are good Jews who, who keep the, the law of Moses. And we follow the traditions of the elders. And we keep all of the ceremonial laws. We will be in the kingdom. And if you ask these Pharisees what sort of people will be excluded from the kingdom, they would have, they would have responded, well, people who are not like us. Gentiles, the, the Gentile dogs, the immoral, the, the greedy, the dishonest tax collectors. These kinds of, of scum will not be in the kingdom of God. But we see here in this passage that Jesus really yanks out the, the rug from under their self-righteous assumptions by telling this parable. Jesus wants us to hear this parable. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach these Pharisees a very important truth that has been recorded for our edification. Um, he was ready and he was ready to correct their wrong ideas about the spiritual kingdom of God and who would be allowed to enter. And so the, Jesus tells this parable about this great dinner. And all of those people who assumed that they would be allowed to, to enter were the ones who must have been keenly listening to what Jesus had to say. You know, these Pharisees, they saw themselves a few notches above just the normal common Jewish people. They saw themselves above the, in, in a different league to the, to the pagan Gentiles. And Jesus shows them that many of them would not be in the kingdom because they had refused the Lord's invitation. And to their great surprise, many who assumed would not be there would, in fact, be there because in humility they responded to the invitation. We see in chapter 13 of Luke, verse 30, the last would be first and the first would be last. Uh, 
And the answer to the question, who will be at God's banquet in the kingdom, is those who respond personally to the invitation. There is a response that is involved, that is necessary. Knowing all the facts and growing up with all this information doesn't help unless we respond. And today's message is about that. So to have dinner with Jesus in his kingdom, we have to respond personally to his invitation. So that's the background. My second point this morning is from verse 16 to verse 17. And we see the gracious invitation. To answer this question uh, behind our text of, of who will be in the kingdom of God, Jesus starts with a parable. And look at verse 16. He says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. In verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Well, in the ancient Eastern world, there were two stages of invitations given for a banquet of, of the size. You know, remember, this, these were the days before Car 4. There weren't any Lulus or any other big supermarkets. Um, there wasn't electricity. There wasn't refrigeration. This was the days before even running water. And when you held this kind of banquet, it wasn't quite as simple a thing as, as it might be for us today. We can just write on the card, please RSVP or, or get a phone call or get a WhatsApp. That wasn't possible in these days. You had to figure out in advance who was coming so that you could make the correct necessary arrangements. You needed to find out how much food you needed to prepare, how many animals needed to be slaughtered, and how quickly you could prepare the food so the meat didn't spoil. Uh, you needed even to figure out how much produce that was needed to harvest. And, and, all of this time, and, and, and in all of this time, you, know, you needed to know how soon it needed to be prepared for the gathering of the guests. So the invitation was done in two stages. First, the servant went out and he made the blanket invitation. And he waited to get a commitment uh, from those who would say, yes, definitely come in. I will be there. And then he would go back to his master and say, this is the number of people who have committed to come. Now, once you told the, the servant, I plan to come, you could not back out. You couldn't say, well, I've changed my mind. You were duty bound to attend. And so the servants would go about slaughtering the animals, harvesting the, the produce, preparing the, the bread, preparing the meal, preparing the wine, preparing the table, and everything would be set. And when everything was ready, the master would say to the servant, now go out and tell everyone that the meal is ready and they must come. We are waiting for them. And when the second invitation went out, you dropped whatever you were doing, whether you were in the field or whether you were working inside, you dropped everything, you got ready, and you came as soon as possible. Um, and in that custom and in that culture, it was horribly offensive to ever not show up, to ever not arrive when you said you would. And you can relate to this, I'm sure, if you've ever had a, 
had a dinner that you invited people and they couldn't come because maybe they Maybe their, their car broke down or maybe even from some excuse that they made. And all this food's being prepared and nobody arrives. But this is a larger scale we're talking about. And uh, in the culture of its day, it was offensive to make excuses and not show up. But we see that this is what was happening in this passage. Look at the third point here. This leads to my third point. We see the feeble excuses. We see the feeble excuses in verse 18 to verse 20. We read in verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. If you have a Bible, underline that word excuses, because that comes up over and over again. They all alike began to make excuses. And what I'd like you to see is that each of these excuses were horribly offensive and they were insulting to the host. Maybe to us today when we read this passage, these excuses seem legitimate. But in the first century world, they were not. And the first excuse we see in verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Now here's the problem with this excuse. In the first century, Property was considered sacred, and changing possession of ownership of land was a huge deal, even more than it is today, much more than it is today. And you could not purchase land without having seen it first. Remember, there was no internet. You couldn't just log on and have a look at, you know, a property online. You couldn't even take photographs and share them with, with people. You had to have gone to the physical plot and had a look at it and seen it with your own eyes. You needed to be very aware of the, the history of the property. You needed to know the typography. You needed to know the amount of income that this property had produced for its previous owners and calculate how much it could produce for you in the future. And so for someone to say, hey, you know what, I've just bought some land and I need to go and and see it, it was a blatant lie. That's as clearly as I can say. It was offensive. It was insulting. That never happened. So the first excuse we see, a blatant lie. But the second verse is, the second excuse is there in verse 19. Have a look there in your Bibles. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them Please have me excused. So if you're trying to put yourself in this first century scenario, you can almost understand that this first excuse, well, the second excuse is really very similar to the first excuse. The problems are the same. You couldn't buy a yoke of oxen without first trying them to see if they, they pull together. So remember, a yoke of oxen were, were two. And a yoke was put over each of them so that they could pull the cart together. And if you bought a, a very weak cow and then a very strong cow, that yoke would be unequal and that cart would, wouldn't be, be able to have been controlled. So you went and tried it out first. You made sure that you bought the, the correct oxen. So this excuse as well we see was, was a lie. It was offensive and it was 
insulting. Um, the excuse would be as lame as calling your wife on the way home from work saying, um, Honey, I, I'm not coming home this evening because I bought two cars on the internet and now I need to go see if they have tires. You wouldn't do that. Well, that wouldn't happen in the first century, buying oxen without going to see them first. So the third excuse we see in verse 19. Have a look there in your Bibles. Uh, sorry, verse 20, the third excuse. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Well, again, this one's a blatant lie, because in that ancient Near Eastern world, following a wedding would be a week-long activity. It wouldn't just be a day's activity. And what this man was saying was, was this. You know, yesterday I said that I would be able to come to your banquet, but tonight I'm getting married. Well, obviously not. That would never have happened. You would have known pretty much in advance when you were getting married. And it would have taken a whole week for that wedding ceremony to have happened. It just didn't work like that. So this third excuse, just like the second excuse and the first excuse, were offensive. And it was a way of saying to the host, you need to understand that I have other things to do with my time that are much more important than your dinner. I have other things to do with my time that I much prefer doing than spending time with you. So this is really the, the setting here of this parable. It's not really about excuses. It's about the attitude. It's about the desires. It's about our longings that Jesus is speaking about here, that Jesus is addressing here. In each of these excuses, you have a man who's made the decision in response to a to a gracious invitation from a, a generous host. And he agreed, yes, I will come. I will enjoy fellowship with you. I will enjoy relationship with you. I will enjoy celebrating the cause for this banquet. I'll be there. And yet in each excuse, there's an attempt to hide the fact that other things are far more important, are far greater worth spending time than being with the generous host. And the interesting thing here is that none of these excuses were, were, were blatantly sinful. Besides the lie, in and of itself, you know, there was nothing wrong um, with buying land. There was nothing wrong with buying animals or machinery to work the land. The Bible commends enterprise and, and hard work. Uh, there's nothing wrong with even marriage and, and the love of family. And the Bible commands us to, to love our families. But the point is, things that are legitimate in their rightful place can be wrong if they hinder us from getting right with God. It's not just flagrant, blatant sins that keep people out of God's kingdom. Good things that are wrongly emphasized will be just as damning and will do 
the same amount of damage. If a person gets wrongfully caught up with these otherwise good things, he can invent all sorts of excuses for not accepting the Lord's invitation to his dinner. And we see this happening here. You know, a number of times, a number of times in my ministry, people have come up to me and, and asked me to pray that they will have children. And when the Lord blesses them with a child, they stop coming to church. And they use their child as an excuse to, to not gather with the saints. And their child hinders them from getting right with God and hinders them from even serving God. And there may be someone watching here this morning who is so caught up with their possessions or with their, their leisurely pursuits or their career that they end up neglecting their soul. We had someone who used to come to our church who told me plainly one day that coming to church was infringing on his weekend with his family. And because of that, he's no longer coming to church. That's another example of a legitimate blessing from the Lord that was used as an excuse not to accept the Lord's invitation to his dinner. And perhaps you are a single person watching this morning. Perhaps you're longing for a husband. Or perhaps you're longing for a wife. And you would even consider marrying a non-believer because you think he or she will bring you fulfillment and happiness. And if you are willing to put momentary pleasure above the eternal pleasure of dinner with Jesus, then you are effectively saying the same thing as our parable is teaching. Lord, I can't come to your dinner because I have married a wife. And the point is to allow anything to cause you to refuse or put off accepting God's offer of salvation is a foolish decision. If you are a backslidden Christian, to allow anything to cause you to refuse or put off getting right with Jesus is foolish. And the host gets angry here at the refusal because it was an insult. It was rude. It was a, a personal insult to turn down such a, a bountiful invitation. God offered His own Son as the sacrifice for sinners to be reconciled to Him. And as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? As the host here declares in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So the refusal of the first group led to the host to send out the invitation to those who accepted the offer. And we see that in my fourth and last point this morning from verse 21 to verse 22. We see the master is angry here. The master is angry. Look at verse 21. 
the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So we see here the invitation is now shifting from, from those who are worthy of being invited to the dinner to those who are unworthy, to the outcasts, to those who no one would ever expect to be invited to this kind of fancy banquet. We see the list of these people, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And notice this group of people in verse 13 as well as in verse 21. Verse 13 says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then verse 21 says, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. There's repetition here. And what, do we, what have we learned about repetition? Well, when the Bible repeats something, it's because we need to listen. We need to pay attention. So Jesus is not being redundant here. He's driving home a very important point. And you know what's unique about these people? You know what's unique about the poor? You know what's unique about the crippled, the blind, and the lame? It's really quite simple. It's, it's not anything amazing. These people, when they are invited, they come. These are the people who come. And you know why? It's because the blind don't that they don't go out to examine the farmland. They can't examine anything. They can't own these type of things. The crippled don't plow with the oxen. They're unable to. The poor aren't invited to, to hang out with the rich. And the lame and the maimed, they, they don't get married. Nobody wants them. And so when you hear the invitation, when they hear this invitation, they don't make excuses. There's no excuses. Because to go to a banquet is the most amazing invitation that they have ever, ever been given. They hear the invitation and they say, of course, I'll be delighted. There's nothing in my world that I would value more highly than coming to this amazing banquet. There is no treasure that you could offer me that would be more valuable then this, of course I'll come. I will be there. I'll come running. I'll come crawling if I have to. But I will be there. So you see the contrast here. The contrast between these two groups of people who had been invited to this banquet. This first group of people. I think if you line them up, they would look very similar to us, unfortunately. They were the religious people. They showed up at the right times at their house of worship. They read their, their holy book when they were supposed to. They recited scripture. They wore the right clothes. They spoke the right language, religious language. They were well off. They were educated they were self-sufficient. They were independent. 
They were capable. They were pretty self-satisfied. And in the parable, they found something other to do than come to the banquet. And in contrast to this group, we have the second group. They're dependent. They're needy. They are handicapped. They are broken. They are damaged. They are filled with doubts. They are marked by baggage. And they are afraid. And they're alone. And they're hungry. But at the banquet, they are the ones who arrive. They are the ones who accept the invitation. So here you have the contrast between really the reverent and the irreverent. Or here you have the contrast between those who were worthy and those who were unworthy. And when you look at the banquet, the worthy are there. Sorry, the worthy are, are not there. They are outside. They're outside looking in. Because it's the unworthy that have arrived. And there's nothing. These are the people who, who would say there's nothing within myself that qualifies me to be at this banquet. But praise God for this generous offer. Thank you, God, for inviting me. See, there are no party crashes at the banquet of the Lord. You cannot even get in the back door. There's only one way to get to this banquet. You can only come by way of invitation. And invitation is the same for both groups of people, for all groups of people. Both the, the worthy and the unworthy have heard the same invitation. And the only difference really is the response. And what was the deepest desire within each of the persons in the groups? What was most precious? What is my great treasure? And at the end of the day, what will I value most? What's the pearl of, of great price? And there is a banquet that we are waiting for. And the invitation is still there. The invitation still stands. And Jesus still spreads his arms wide and he says, Come, welcome, come, for everything is now ready for you. And the invitation is there, folks. The invitation is not at the end of our lives when, when we think that, well, we've, we've spent our lives doing what we wanted to do. Now we're going to get right with the Lord. The invitation is now. Now is the accepted day of the Lord. It stands. The invitation stands at the beginning of each day. And that's great encouragement. If you are one of these people who thought that you are worthy, that you are self-satisfied, that you don't need to come to this banquet, and you feel that you've wasted your opportunity, hear the encouragement from the word today. The Lord still stands at the beginning of each day. But understand, there's only one way to come. There's only one way to come. And the only way is to recognize that you are a poor, crippled, blind, and lame. The only way to come is to humble yourself at the foot of the cross and put your faith 
in the one who is superior and far greater and worthy than we are. And this group of guests here that come to this banquet are those who are dependent, those who are needy, those who are broken. They come with their fears. They they come with their anxieties. Because the master has called them. He's invited them. And they don't make excuses. And Jesus looks at us this morning and says, Come, you're invited. And the invitation is open. It's a free invitation. But it's not a cheap invitation. I really want to emphasize that this morning. This is not an invitation that costs Jesus nothing. Because you see, even Jesus on the day that he made that invitation, he knew all well that on a hill outside of Jerusalem, he would have to be crucified on a cross that is stained with his blood, his own blood. And he knew that from that cross would be removed his broken, dead body, buried dead, lifeless, in a tomb. And yet he knew that three days later it would rise again. He would rise and he would ascend to glory so that he could prepare a banquet of global, eternal proportions such as you and I cannot even begin to imagine. And even this day he says, Come, for everything is now ready The table is lavishly spread. Everything is prepared. Nothing is missing except you. So what excuses are you making today? Jesus is telling us through this parable, none of our excuses are really valid. Don't make them. Don't make excuses. Don't wait until you figure out how to make yourself more presentable. You don't think you've, you've got this figured it out and, and you've got a plan. You know, don't even say, well, that sounds good, but I'll do it later because later will never arrive. And Jesus looks at us today and he says, come. And to some of us, he says, come back. You've wondered. You've got caught up in the world and you've got caught up with your flesh. Leave that and come. Come back. This invitation is for all of us, folks. Don't make excuses. There's really one last application that that I want to make this morning that is for believers. And we see it. Notice the answer the master gives to the concerns of the the servant in verse 22. Look there in verse 22. The servant says, So what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And then in verse 23, the master says to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So notice the servant's job was to convince the people. We see that word mentioned there. His job was to convince the people along the highways, along the hedges, 
along the, the, the streets, the, the street people, that they were welcome to come to the banquet. And again, I'm sure they could have come up with all sorts of their own excuses, seemingly legitimate excuses for not, for not coming. You know, the poor could have said, well, I don't have anything decent to wear. Um, I can't come to such a feast. And the crippled man, he, he could have said, well, I can't get anyone to carry me, so, so, so I can't come. You know, the blind could have said, well, I can't see, I can't find my way there, so I can't come. The lame could have said, it hurts too much to, to walk on my, on my crippled leg, I, I can't come. But they all accepted the offer because the servant convinced them. The servant convinced them of the gracious, loving master who was waiting for them. Notice that. They saw their need. They saw their hunger. And they were convinced by the servant that the master would supply. That the master would meet them where they were. And they believed the offer. And they responded in faith personally to it in spite of the potential excuses that each could have come up with. The servant did his job well. He didn't run a, a background check on all of these people before he invited them to the feast. Their background check didn't matter. That wasn't what was important. He didn't find out their nationality. That wasn't important. He didn't ask about their religious background or whether they even had one. That wasn't important. That didn't matter. He didn't get a promise that they would behave and that they would show proper manners at the dinner table. That wasn't important. The invitation was not based on anything in the recipients. The invitation was based totally on the goodness and the bounty of the host. The servant was told to go. And he understood the value of this invitation and the value of this message and the need that the people had. And what did the servant do? He obeyed. He went. He was told to go. And he went. I hope you see where I'm going with this. Jesus has told us to go a number of times. In Mark chapter 16, I'm just reading one verse from the Gospels. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the selected few. Is that what it says? To those who are, have nice clothes, to those who can read, to those who are worthy. Look at the Bible, folks. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to everybody. We are commanded by the master to go. The invitation is for all. And we don't decide who can come and who cannot come. 
We are told to go. And our obedience is demanded here. Notice the word go is a, is a command to action. And going requires movement in the, in the direction that we are sent. And Jesus sends his followers with the message of the kingdom. This wonderful message that Jesus has sent this invitation. This wonderful invitation. If we stay or if we even look back, you know, we are demonstrating that we don't have, we don't hold much value to this kingdom invitation. That we're not really interested in this kingdom. And staying is, is evidence that we are not kingdom focused. We're not kingdom minded at all. And the servant could have come up with his own set of excuses not to go. He could have argued that there wasn't anyone fit enough to go to. Or that it was too difficult. He could have argued that he couldn't find anybody nice enough. Or educated enough. Or religious enough. But he didn't. He obeyed. And he went. Oswald Cha Chambers, you may have read his book, My Utmost for His Highest. Very famous book. Christian author. He wrote in this book, he says, that if you say, I know that he told me to go, but I can't, it simply means that you do not believe that Jesus means what he says. If you say, I know that he told me to go, but I can't, it simply means that you do not believe that Jesus means what he says. Christian, please hear me this morning. Do you believe what Jesus means, what he says? What excuses are you making this morning? For not sharing this glorious gospel with those who are dying in their sins. What is your excuse? When last did you share this wonderful life-giving gospel with somebody dying in their sins? I'm too busy. Oh, I don't want to offend them. Do you believe what Jesus is saying here this morning? Do you believe the power of the gospel? Do you believe the need for the gospel? Do you believe that people are dead in their sins? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe that if people reject this gospel or die without hearing the gospel, that they will spend eternity in the lake of fire for their sins? Do you believe this? Just like the invitation is not based on anything in the recipients, but on the goodness and the bounty of the host, so is this call to action. We're not to trust our, our own skills or our own talents or our own methods and our strategies when it comes to sharing the gospel. We need to simply be faithful and trust the power of the gospel to save sinners. Jesus sends us into the world to do the most loving thing possible to invite people to the great dinner 
the Father is merciful to me. His mercies are never ending. They are new every morning. Let me tell you about my gracious Father. Jesus says, go, tell people, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us to go and be merciful. He tells us to go and love our neighbors and tell others of the mercies of our gracious God. Do not be ashamed of the glorious, hope-filled, life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Our master says to all of us today, go out to the highways, go out to the hedges and compel people to come that my house may be filled. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would bless these words to the ears and the hearts of those that are hearing this morning. Lord, it's so difficult for me to gauge whether people have heard this message or not. But I can trust your spirit, Lord. I know your spirit is the one who teaches us and the one who points us to Jesus and the one who convicts of sin and the one who comforts those that need to be comforted. So I do pray this morning, Lord, that your spirit would help us apply and help us see and help us examine our hearts whether we are making excuses and whether we are denying the gracious master who is calling us to his banquet. And whether we're denying others, Lord, please, I pray. Father, that you would do a work of grace in our lives. Save those that need to be saved this morning. Give them a heart of flesh. Give them repentance this morning. Take away the hard, stony heart this morning. That they would call upon the name of the Lord. Repent of their sins and by faith be saved today. And for those, Lord, who are needing to be revived in their hearts this morning. May they hear this call as well. Jesus says, come. And may they come, Lord Jesus. And for those of us, Lord, who, who need to be more faithful, need to be more obedient, and stop using this COVID pandemic as an excuse not to talk to people, please, Lord, take away the scales from our eyes. There are people dying during this pandemic. And we need to tell them about our gracious Father, our loving God, our heavenly King, who has made a way for them to come to this marvelous feast. So please, Lord, do your work for the sake of your great name and for the joy of your people. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.